the playoffs are in full swing and we have a bunch of news outside of that to cover too you don't want to miss this episode of the indie ball report We are back, episode number 183 of the Indie Ball Report podcast. I'm Nick, he's Will, and we have to record on Saturday morning again because things change very quickly during September, during playoff time. You almost have to, just because it's hard to do, it's hard to talk about playoffs, you know, like the day before. Uh, it's hard, it's hard to do that just because like the whole discussion changes like literally one game. That kind of just comes with the territory of the playoffs, I would say. Absolutely. I mean, even last week, you kind of saw where you're like, oh, these races are kind of up in the air still. We don't know. And then Friday night comes through and like we have our playoff field set yeah. in both sides. And it's like everything okay, was solved at that point. Yeah. And then by like the only thing that was left to question was, OK, who's going to host what? was pretty much all that was left with the sole exception, I will say, of the Lincoln and uh, Sioux City race. That one. That one was down to the wire, I will say. That was good told about Monday, I think. So that was the rare exception. But we do have playoffs, and we do have those races to discuss. So I guess we could do that yeah. on a baseball podcast. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what we do. Yeah, it is what we do. And so we'll start on that aforementioned Friday night, from which I decide, you know what? going to go up to Skylands. And you know what I got to see on Friday night in Skylands? What you get to see? Well, I got to see a no-hitter that ended a team season. Wow. That's yeah. not something you see every day. I, I still, I've, I've been to so many baseball games in my life. I have never come close to seeing a no-hitter. See, that's the one that surprised me. I would have figured that you would have had at least one in there. Like, not even, like, seriously, like, not even close. Really? But uh, that, that must that must have been awesome, I'm sure. It was. It's one of the things I've always wanted to see live. Like, I've... I've seen a couple close ones. I've seen things get taken to like the 6th or the 7th. Never beyond that, though. But seeing it happen live was very impressive. And even more impressive was the fact that it was a one-run performance by the team that got no hit. Right. Because that's always... It's funny how that... uh, It's funny how that ends up working sometimes. And you see like how like all the ways you can score... A run without without getting a hit, which I guess Sussex was able to do in the third inning. I mean, but Jorge Tavares, I mean, just just one for the books. I mean, he, I mean, talk about. I, I think um, and Jaggles just let him run totally. Yeah, and uh, they just let him lose. I'm like, all right, last start of the season, like just totally empty the gas tank, and man, did he! And just an incredible, incredible performance. It's hard to put into words. I mean, he's just, just an unbelievable outing. I mean, you you were there. I'm sure yeah. you can you can speak to it better. But I mean, 16 punch outs in nine—that's just insanity. Yeah, what, what's impressive, and in case people haven't caught on, the the Jackals shut out the Miners. Final score being uh, seven to one, with the uh, the one run for the Miners coming in via bases loaded walk. And so as you could probably guess, there was a lot of walks. There were six walks in total in the game. One run, it was earned. 16 strikeouts, no hits. Grand total for Jorge Tavares was 147 pitches, which I, I'll be amazed if he's able to feel his arm still. Uh, it's a truly a great performance for him. And I gotta say, like being there in person, 
what kind of got me was, like, normally you don't expect a no-hair to really kind of sneak up on you. You kind of expect to see it. But because there was a lot of walks and guys still reaching base, I mean, he still faced 32 batters in a uh, no-hitter. You never really, like, kind of caught on. You just kind of assumed at least one of them came via a walk, you know, or via a hit, rather. You know, you, you see a bunch of guys on, you kind of assume. And I think it was, like, around the 6th or the 7th, I looked up, and I was like, there's, wait, they still haven't gotten a hit? And I remember making a, a comment, like, wow, they've gotten a run before they've gotten a hit. What's up with that? And so I remember saying, at a certain point, I'm going to start rooting for this no-hitter. And it just kind of snuck up on you. And I think, well, we went back and forth on Twitter for a, a brief second, too, where he said, well, now you jinxed. And I said, if you were watching this game, you'd know I did not jinx this game because the yeah. the minor offense was just kind of uh, anemic, I guess would be the best way of putting it. Like, you looked at two teams, and the Jackals looked like the team that was fighting for their playoff life, not the minors. It's as simple as that. And it's unfortunate because the minors did have a good season. You know, they won what was it, about 56 games or so, 57 games roughly. So yeah. they put up a really good season, but they just did not show up on a day where they absolutely needed to win if they wanted to give themselves a shot. And, well, they just didn't. Early in, in that same day, the the Valley Cat season was basically done, and then I believe either they lost or we had one win. I think it was a Boulder win that kind of did them in. So they were no longer factors, really just the minors that had a shot, even though it was realistically an outside shot. But uh, Tavares just kind of kept going and kept going and just kept knocking these guys down. It was an extremely impressive performance that essentially uh, put the final nail in the minors' coffin there. So uh, congratulations to him on throwing that no-hitter. Very, very, very impressive. I, I, I almost wonder, just because... Uh, just because you mentioned, like, it's not even just like, well, a no, a no hitter happened. It literally ended a team season in a game where, you know, they had to, they had to show up and, uh, and they were just totally shut down by, by Jorge Tavares. I mean, I think you're at a point where, like, maybe just the idea of playing spoiler to, to your rival was just so, was, was just so there for, for the Jackals and, being able to like finish off their arrival season, even though you know, of course, the Jackals standings wise had nothing to play for at that point. Um, but I think that uh, just the fact that they were able to they were able to play spoiler. I'm sure they were they wanted to win regardless, uh, and just to see that happen. I mean, 147 pitch. I'm trying to remember. Like I think because Edwin Jackson, I know, threw a no hitter for the D-backs against the Rays. I believe in like. 2009 or something like that mm. and he had i think a similar amount of pitches it's just an incredible feat i think they really just let him just let him empty the gas tank in his last start of the season uh but i mean 16 punch outs uh just what an incredible outing and i'm sure a, a great moment I'm, and i'm thinking like did people like understand what was going on like in the crowd at all? Or? Uh, they started to pick it up later on, I think. Keep in mind too, it's also at Skyland, so it's going to be more of a minor crowd. Now, of course, there was a contingent, you know, um, Scott the Trumpet Man and the usual characters from uh, the Jackal Stadium. They did make the trip up to Skylands, uh, so they were definitely on top of it. Everybody else. 
they started picking up around the seventh or eighth. Like right around when I kind of started noticing, I kind of noticed the crowd started picking up on it where they're like, Oh God, we may actually get no hit. It, it just cause like you said, like the traffic on the base is kind of almost like a smoke screen for it where it's just like at no point did it feel overwhelming. Like even the 16 strikeouts kind of snuck up, even though I mean, you had a lot of guys going down by the strike. I think only. Figueroa was the lone man for the miners that did not strike out at least once. Uh, some guys were only struck out once, which is better, but then you have other guys like Perez, Harris, uh, Silvario, uh, they all struck out three times in, uh, four or three at best, depending on the player. So, you know, not great there, but, uh, yeah, and I, d- it definitely was almost like a quiet no hitter where it just kind of snuck up on you and then boom, it was there. It was still cool to see, obviously, but, uh, you know, it did sneak up on you there. And also just going back to Edwin Jackson, 149 pitches. He walked eight, hit one, and then one reached on an error. Okay. Certainly, certainly a lot of pitches, but I guess, I guess in that case, you can turn him loose and, uh, just, yeah, just, uh, an incredible night for sure. And just what a gut punching way for the, the Sussex County Miners to end their season for sure. It definitely was, but, uh, Second year in a row, the Miners kind of just fall short, you know, but hey, you know, they were still a solid enough year. Like I said, they still had, you know, 54 wins is what they wound up ending with. And, you know, they wind up being f- about three, two and a half back, three back of getting into the postseason there. So an unfortunate turn of events for them, but still a hell of a feat there for Justin Wiley. And then looking at the playoffs now, because we, or we have one round done, surprisingly enough. And that is uh, the wild card round. Ottawa and the Boulders got in. Boulders hosted that game. And the day before, we had the uh, Schomburg Boomers hosting the Evansville Otters. Uh, of course, so we'll start off in Evansville there, where we had a bit of an issue, admittedly. So in that uh, game one had to be uh, delayed. Or well, suspended rather, because of a uh, faulty light tower. Yeah, a, a a faulty a faulty light tower, which is an issue when you're playing a night game. Uh, yep. But I mean, it, it was that's something at least in a playoff game you're, you don't really expect to see, uh, and just you wonder because at the end of the day, like. Uh, that knocks out your starter. It, like, it totally changes the entire strategy of it. Because, um, because there, because then your starter's done, uh, going into the next day. You gotta turn it over to your bullpen. Uh, and now granted, at, at the time, you, you almost wonder when, when the lights became that issue, could that have just been like, and it ended up not, but yeah. could that have been a, uh, blessing in disguise really for Evansville because they were they were off to such a bad start and they were they were down five five nothing like just like that in the first two innings uh it ended up not really being that way but uh it's fun it's funny to think about like what kind of impact that could have had uh but I mean credit to the uh, the Schaumburg pitching staff which uh uh Yoshikawa uh, start that before but I mean uh Nicole coming, Thomas Nicole coming in with three no hit innings, uh, 
I, I think that the, I mean, the bullpen for Schaumburg did an unbelievable job, uh, kind of picking up the slack, uh, and continuing to shut down Evansville, even, the, even when they faced some adversity and having, and having to, uh, get the game into the next day. Uh, but, you know, sometimes weird stuff like that happens, but Schaumburg did a great job, like, as a team that's been there before. Uh, and they did a, they did a great job just, uh, not letting it impact them and, and their pitching staff. You're like, you just can't say enough. I mean, they allowed two hits for the whole game. So, uh, a great performance for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as that delay went on, I really was starting to think, okay, this is going to help Evansville. And as we started to get to about that 45 minute hour mark, I was starting to think, okay, it's, this is going to have to get delayed. It's going on too long. And then once we got about 90 minutes in on it, then it officially said, okay, we're going to suspend the game. We're going to resume it tomorrow. Same score, same everything. Okay. But Brad Adcock, he had a bad outing. He got hit bad. Uh, I was at five earned in one and a third innings. That's just not going to get the job done in a playoff game. And ultimately, those are the only five runs that um, the Boomers got all day. Now, the bullpen for the... For the Otters, they do a good job. I mean, they produced, what, eight innings or seven innings, rather, of uh, one-hit baseball. I mean, that's more than what you could ask out of your bullpen there, especially given the circumstances. It's just Schomburg shut them down. Uh, yeah, I almost want to say it worked out better for the Boomers that Yoshikawa only went two innings. If uh, people want to go back and look on our Twitter page, we do have uh, screenshots of a kind of a little chart thing I put out which kind of showed his last three starts or last few starts against the Boomers this season. And Yoshikawa hadn't fared great. I think it was in two or three outings. He had an ERA of about four, four and a half. So clearly the Otters team does manage to get to him a little bit. So only going through, what, two thirds of the road of the lineup there because he no hit uh, two innings. Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it allowed him to stay fresh. Nicole goes through and just kind of, Boom, knocks out the whole rotation or whole lineup in one go because he went three innings. And then you could just keep going with new pitchers from there because you have the travel day to rest them. And a reliever is good to go. I mean, if you give them one day's rest, most of them are going to get at least two or three days rest. They should be more than fine. Yoshikawa, after only throwing two innings, I mean, realistically, if they wanted to, they could have ran him out again in, uh, in against the, uh, wild things and they still could in theory, do that. I mean, that's certainly a possibility for them if they want to go that way. But overall, they just kind of came out and they performed and they jumped on the Otters very early on. And, uh, well, it worked, obviously. Otters really couldn't respond. It seemed like they were back on their heels. And uh, that's just not the kind of performance you're going to need in a playoff game. Uh, and just the way that this Boomers team's kind of designed and the way that they perform... This is the kind of way they win games. They're opportunists, and when you give them an opportunity and they take advantage of it, you're just not really going to get it back, especially with some of the guys in their lineup, I think like Braxton Davidson in particular, where he struck out coming into this game 18-25, to but he still had a few home runs in there too. So if he's either a strikeout or a long ball, if he's basically Adam Dunn, then uh, he's going to get his home runs off of you. So you got to make sure when that happens, there's no one on base. And unfortunately for the Boomers, there was a guy on base. So that was a problem there. There was a lot of just other ones and just seemed like a bunch of little deaths by a thousand cut type things. Nothing really seemed to get going on offense. And 
And that's going to be kind of a story throughout Wild Card Weekend, I think, when we look at everything. Yeah, definitely. And you, you, I mean, you look at Braxton Davidson. Is uh, he's good at that one thing? I mean, you look for the stats for the game: uh, one for three, a walk, two strikeouts, and a big, big home run. So a big two-run home run. So I, I think that uh, I mean, Schaumburg, they they got it going early. They seized the momentum. They were able to keep it going uh, through uh, through the night. Uh, and continued, and then uh, their pitching staff and bullpen did a great job closing it out uh, the following day. So, uh, I mean, congrats to them. Uh, and one game plus, anything could happen, but they, they took care of business. They absolutely did. And so with that 5-1 victory, they advanced to the divisional round in the West Division of the Frontier League against the Washington Wild Things. We will talk about game one in that series in one second but first we have to discuss the final game of the wild card weekend for them for the frontier league that is and that is the ottawa titans at the new york bowl just a game that i was in attendance for and i gotta be honest it was not the result i was expecting i really thought boulders riding a 12 game winning streak i thought it was one of those situations where you're just so hot you're going to keep going and that was not it at all. Right from the gate, it just was not the Boulders' night. Uh, it winds up being 2 nothing very early on after a, a two-run shot by Rodrigo Orsico, I believe is how it's pronounced. He hits a two-run shot, then they tack on another run in the second. They tack on another three in the fourth. And at, this game is also one of those situations where it's like, oh, God, I may see another no-hitter. Of course, that kind of got broken up a few innings in. Uh, but ultimately, it wasn't a great outing, I don't think, for the Boulders at all. Um, obviously, because they lost. But a two-run shot from Ray Hernandez really kind of saved the day as far as keeping it somewhat respectable. Uh, he made it at that point. It was 8-2. to two. He got back two runs that were given up the, follow- the previous inning. They wound up putting up four hits. They, it looks like they changed the scoring to have two errors, but I still got to be completely honest. I think that's very generous here. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts in this game. I'll get into them all after after uh, you make uh, some comments, Well, But overall, this game, just it seemed like a real mess from the Boulder perspective. And I walked out of it knowing that Ottawa played a better game and absolutely deserved to win that game, but I wasn't sure how good they quite were. I, I think that you know this is the this is the problem with like with the one game playoff because uh, <clears throat> because at the end of the day like this is it all comes down it all comes down to one game uh, and especially with Ottawa you know throwing Zach Westcott on the mound and I know Westcott's had a little bit of a down year by his standards uh, but I mean he came in and threw a terrific threw a terrific ball game. Uh, and you know, for for the Boulders, they they got down early, and it's hard. It's it's hard, and I, as I think we saw in the in really in the other game in the Schaumburg Evansville game, the the start is so crucial. Uh, mm. Sosa did not give a good start, and then you know the Boulders tried to bring in their main man Wertanski to come in, and he and he had a rough outing out of the bullpen as well. So it, it all comes down to like how you how you start the game. Uh, you mentioned the the Boulders defense. I think that that's certainly going to hurt you in a game like that. Uh, but I mean, I think you also have to give you have to give a good amount of credit to Ottawa. I mean, they came in on the road. 
Uh, they crossed the border to go play a one-game playoff game on the road against a Boulders team that was incredibly hot. Not that the Titans weren't, because the Titans were also hot coming in. But, I mean, the Boulders were just scalding hot. Uh, but hey, the, the, but that's what starting pitching can do for you. That's when you have Zach Westcott out there. Uh, and again, I know ZRA is around four this year, so not the the ace type of season that we've u- that we're used to seeing from him. But at, at the same time, I think um, when you throw a guy like Westcott out there, he did a great job getting weak contact. Uh, didn't miss a ton of bats, but was able to was able to go seven and two thirds innings. Uh, when you had that kind of stabilizing force. Um, like Zach Westcott, it's tough to beat. And so even on the road, it, it, all, it evens all things out. And they were able to cool off the boulders. Uh, and the offense, uh, the offense uh, for Ottawa really picked it up uh, and, and hit the boulders early and kind of put this one to bed very soon. I will say two things. One, from just like a crowd perspective, it felt a lot more like a Ottawa home game. There was like a decent amount of you know, uh, people that were related to Ottawa players that did make the trip with them. So it definitely gave me more of an Ottawa crowd feel. Uh, that said, what I will say is I don't really think that's a fair stat line to Orchansky. And I do think Westcott's stat line is a little bit deceiving in that the boulders were getting good contact. A lot of just heavy contact where you if they had timed their swing a bit better, that probably winds up being a home run or it winds up falling for a hit, but instead it winds up hooking foul to the crowd or just not having enough to get out. So it's still playable with a rather large amount of uh, foul ground territory there because of how the bullpens are set up at uh, Clover Stadium. And a lot of things, you can see they kind of just got underneath it, so now it's just riding out kind of to like two or three feet in front of the track, sometimes right up against the wall. So we're chance or um, not we're chance Westcott was getting hit. It's just they weren't really turning into anything of note because the fielding was there and the boulders really were just kind of just a second or two behind it or just a second or two in front of it. They just weren't quite entirely there. Likewise with Rochansky, I think this was especially bad. A little bit was Pineda, but particularly Rochansky I don't necessarily know if all three of those runs are deserved just because the fielding was really, really bad. Like when I mean it was bad, I hate to blame one or two people for a loss because it is a team effort at the end of the day. They still only put up two runs across nine innings of baseball. They only put up four hits across nine innings of baseball. You got to do more than that, especially when one of the few times you reach base was off of catcher's interference, so that's never a good sign when that's contributing to a non-insignificant amount of your offense. That said, there was a lot of times where, I believe it was Garcia behind the play, I think it was Gabe Garcia, he was started at uh, catcher, but then when Austin Dennis got gunned for, I believe, throwing his helmet down, which seemed like a really, really weak uh, ejection, but I will allow you to guess who is the umpire that ejected him for that? Um, oh, hold on. Is he? Oh, um, give me Alex. Who is Freddie De Jesus? How'd you guess it right? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting third base side. I saw my boy Tim working first base, 
And once I saw Freddy at third, I was like, oh, some stupid thing's going to happen today. And what I think happened here, because I couldn't hear Dennis say anything at second. Because like I said, I was maybe four rows from the field, third base side, right by the Ottawa dugout. So if there was something said, at least loud enough to be heard, I probably would have heard it. TJ Stanton certainly would have heard it. And it, neither one of us heard anything. TJ didn't react to his player being thrown out, which I thought, you guys getting thrown out in the middle of a blowout playoff game. Maybe because they were playing dead too. And I think that's really the biggest killer for the boulders is they looked like they were just tired. It looks like they put everything they had for the last two weeks to get to this point and just didn't have enough in the tank. But if I'm the manager of that situation, I'm like, I'm really not doing much managing here today. My bench coaches could probably get the job done. I may go try and get myself gunned because of my player getting gunned to try and like get the guys hyped up, get some energy back in. There is still a handful of innings left. Who knows what could have happened? You know, even if you only have two or three innings, you put up some runs in each of them. It makes it interesting, but whatever there. I didn't hear the back to the main point. I didn't hear Dennis say anything. Maybe he said it kind of quietly and then threw his helmet down, but it was only after he threw the helmet that he got gunned. So it just felt like a really, really weak ejection uh, out of Freddy. And it just... <laughs> It, it just is so in line with him that when he got gunned, I was like, yep, that's Freddie would be the guy that guns him. There, Freddie has probably the quickest trigger uh, in, in all of indie ball umpires. He will, uh, anything he views as either disrespectful or whatnot, yeah. he will not hesitate, that's for sure. Yeah, you got him in the end of the bottom of the sixth here. I'm just that, which, needless to say, all we'd have to do is ask Pete and Kukvili about Freddy, and I'm sure we'd have a fun time with that. But uh, He's got plenty of experience. <laughs> well, plus with the Atlantic League getting suspended in the postseason there. That yeah, was, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a fun one. But uh, anyway, back to the point of the game here. Yeah, once Dennis got gunned, they moved Garcia over to second, and they brought in, I'm going to mess it up, but I believe it is GM Martellini to catch. And I was like, oh... The guy that should have started this game at catcher is now into this ball game because once he came in in the seventh, there really was no more notable mistakes. Like he played the position a lot better. I noticed a lot of passed balls, which realistically a catcher should be able to get or should be able to get in front of. It seemed worse with the harder throwing pitchers like a Dylan Smith that uh, he wasn't really getting in front of things. Like, if you notice, there was eight walks in this game. At a certain point, I understand pitchers not hitting a zone, and it was also kind of a so-so zone, I thought, for Rockland as well. Of course, where I was at, I couldn't really see where these things were going great, but it did look a lot like some things you could have said, all right, we'll give you that, and they weren't really getting it. But whatever on that, I'm not going to blame uh, umpiring and balls and strikes for a loss. It's seldom ever the reason. Uh, what Morris, like I said, it just felt like Garcia could not really field the position well. Uh, there was a lot of times where you'd see relay throws that just weren't being cut off or relay throws that would just miss the relay man and then it would be going way off behind home plate and that would allow a runner to go you know, instead of stopping at third to score or instead of stopping at second, advancing the third. It was just a lot of really poor fielding. 
I feel like poor fielding alone, you could probably account for three runs, maybe four runs in this game. And even if you want to just say three, three runs in a, you know, six run game still does mean a lot. It changes the outcome of it because you play the game a lot differently. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't necessarily blame Rachansky for it just because the fielding was pretty atrocious i'm not gonna lie like the fact that we only had two errors listed here it's honestly quite amazing and honest i didn't even see the error for uh for ottawa to be honest they played a very clean game that's and i do want to give uh, ottawa their props too i think i may be focusing yeah. on rockland a bit too much just because you know i have more of an invested interest over there but i will say they played a very clean game everybody pretty much got aboard either by a walk or via hit uh they Overall, looked very good. AJ Wright made a fantastic catch uh, along the third base side. Uh, he ran into the tarp, held on, made an inning-ending grab with that. Uh, everybody just seemed to be playing their best. It seemed like Ottawa woke up and realized, "Oh wow, we came very close to knife and getting to this point. We managed to get here. We have to win. We don't have a tomorrow." While, like I said, the Rockland mindset seemed to be. We don't have anything left. We've given everything already. And that's just not what you need to see in a uh, postseason game. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think for the Ottawa era, I assume that's the catcher's interference you were talking about because catcher's interference is an error. Yeah, that would be it then, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think that you make a good point about the Boulders uh, possibly running out of gas in this game just because they uh, they put so much in the they had and they had to and they they had to because they were not really they were more on, they've been on the outside looking in really for about 90 percent of the season honestly so uh they they had to get hot at the right time but i mean uh ottawa did ottawa did in a lot of ways as well once they fell out uh fell, uh, fell out of the play, of the playoff spot um towards the end of season two but i think um I wonder how I, this is. This is a matchup between uh, ultimately two really good teams that I almost. I kind of would have liked to see, like in a series, and like mm-hmm. I get why. I I get obviously why that the playoff system is the way that it is, and I'm not. I'm not saying that this playoff system is bad at all. Yeah. Uh, I'm just saying that I think that the this these two teams would have played a fun best of three or a fun best of five. Uh, and I think I wonder how different the outcome would be. But in you know in one game, and it sounds like the Boulders just played one of the worst games that they have in quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, and their pitching staff walks eight guys in nine innings, and that's uh, and that's going to be tough. It doesn't doesn't even matter that you're on your home field. So um, I think that's that's the beauty of the one game playoff that uh, it all comes down to that one game and. Uh, and ultimately the boulders didn't really show up in this one game and you know it makes you wonder what it could have been like in a series but uh but at the end of the day uh ottawa played one of their best games and the boulders played probably their worst uh the the worst that you'll see from them and that's and that's enough to send someone home but uh you know and that at the end of the day though that sets the stage for a, a terrific uh east division uh, championship series it absolutely does. As now Ottawa goes on to play Quebec in the East Division of the Frontier League's postseason. Now, we have both of those games to talk about because they both were played last night, Friday night, 
And we do have game two in the Quebec Ottawa series tonight, Saturday, with game three coming Sunday, uh, if necessary. And in the case of Schaumburg and Washington, game two will be Sunday and to see how that winds up shaking out here. But we will continue talking about, I guess, Ottawa and Quebec just because we're already on that topic. And then we will swing back to talk about Schaumburg again in just a moment. So remember how I said in the beginning, I'm talking about the wild card recap there. And I said, I don't really know what to make of Ottawa right now. I don't know if they're really a good team or if they just beat up on a bolder team having a really bad night. This one kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah, this game kind of removed that doubt from me and to the point where I'm like, you know what? <clears throat> they're a legit team now. They're very much legit in that, uh, they shut out Quebec 3 0. Uh, that is extremely impressive. And what's even more impressive is they put up three runs against Miguel C and Fuegas. That's just, it's something else to me. Like, two, only two runs were earned. But even still, Tyler Jandron threw a fantastic game. Nine inning shutout, only, what, six base runners, I believe, in the whole game. Yeah. So, this is not the kind of Ottawa team that's going to beat you by striking you out a ton. They've seemed to be very clear-cut, made a decision on, we're going to beat you by just getting you to under-hit balls. We're just going to get you to just hit weak contact, just non-threatening hits, which makes me start to think if uh, in that Boulder game, was it the Boulders were just always a second behind or were the pitches just that perfect to where Ottawa kept getting the outcome they wanted and Rockland just couldn't adjust to it? Because when this happens in back-to-back days where it's like, okay, only allowed eight hits through two games, it, it kind of tells me that. And overall, it's not obviously as impressive an offensive output, only three runs as opposed to eight. But even still, you had guys doing their job. You still had a pretty fantastic night out of Ottawa. Uh, guys still reaching base. Guys still, you know, kind of getting through. And, and like I said, just pretty much doing their job. Meanwhile, you look at Quebec and you see a lot of 0 for 3, 0 for 4, 0 for 4, 1 for 2, 0 for 3, 0 for 3, 1 for 3. You know, you just kind of look down the line and there's just no one really kind of stepping up and taking it. And if I'm Quebec, I'm a little bit concerned because Cienfuegas should have been the one surefire win that you have. Because, I mean, the man has, what, a sub-2 ERA? There's a reason why he is gonna, he was the pitcher of the year. And when you kind of waste one of his starts like that, you're probably not going to get it back. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story. I mean, you have these two rivals playing against each other in the postseason, and of course, uh, with Game One uh, going going uh, playing being played in Ottawa as well. I mean, Tyler Jandron. I mean, just an unbelievable start uh, against a terrific Quebec lineup. Uh, that really we've not, we have not seen many, many people shut them out, uh, or, or able to keep them at bay for most of the season. And, you know, when that, uh, he's, he was not, he didn't miss a ton of bats. He was able to do it, mixing speeds, hitting his spots, pitching to weak contact. Uh, and at the end of the day, I mean, just what a start from him. Um, Otto's offense was, was able to do enough. Uh, they were, again, this is, uh, they jumped out early. They seized the momentum, 
uh, and Quebec was not able to get it back. But you're right. It, you're right, Nick. It is a the, the big story here is that Quebec did Fuego start. And that is, that is a huge story, uh, going into, going into game two tonight, uh, because, uh, they're going, Quebec's going to need somebody else to step up. They're going to need their bullpen to step up as well, uh, as they head back home. You know, it, it gives you the age old type of thing when game in best of threes where game one means so much. And, uh, and it makes you wonder. Quebec had, I guess, how, how many days did Quebec have off from their last regular? They had, uh, because they they played Sunday, I assume. Yeah, then, so then they would have had about five days off, four days off. Yeah. So that's, and as opposed to an Ottawa team that did play on Wednesday, maybe it didn't have much of an impact. Maybe it did. Uh, but uh, certainly, certainly something to note. But I think that just the fact that they were able to hit Cienfuegos when really, very few teams have been able to do it all year. Uh, they were able to jump out on them, and you know they, they did make an error that cost them. But I think that uh, the fact that Quebec was not able to win a, a Cienfuego start is a big story. And that's not to say Quebec is out of this. I still think that even though they're down 1-0, I would still pick them to win this series. But at the same time, it, it's it really does put them in a rough spot that they were. Of course, as any team would be in a rough spot if they don't win game one of the best of three. Uh, but the fact that Cienfuegos was burned, uh, in, in this first game is a, is a really a big story and a and something that, that Pat Scalabrini is going to have to, uh, I'm sure, uh, was kind of penciling down, you know, like, and you can't like pencil down wins, but I think he was like, all right, seeing Fuego's going to give him a good chance to win. And I guess he didn't have his best stuff. He wasn't bad by any stretch, but, uh, he, he gave he him had, a winnable start really when you get down to yeah, it. Yeah. It was, it was a quality start. He didn't, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, when their offense struggled and Tyler Jandron on the other side, uh, totally shoved. Uh, it's that, that puts it, puts them into an elimination. And so, that's that's the beauty of the playoffs. Sometimes when when you're has an has such a good regular season, uh, and it all comes down to a really a best of three. Baseball playoffs are always a crapshoot, and so your 62 and 34 record can go right out the window. So uh, so it, but it'll be a fascinating game too, and back in Quebec for sure. Absolutely there, and you know I assume this means that we're going to see Chris Bircia. Who his last start was September fourth against the Capitals. Who he went seven innings, eight hits, three earned runs, three runs in total. Uh, that's a pretty good stat line against Quebec. And what's also great about this is, if you're Ottawa now, game two matters because you want to close this thing out. You want to end it. Only one game in Quebec, so that way you can get ready for a championship matchup. But should you not win it? Presumably, Zach Westcott would be able to go in uh, in the game three on right. uh, Sunday, on account of you'd have Thursday, Friday, Saturday off. Granted, you'd like more than three days rest, but I'm sure he could still give you three or four innings of work. And uh, it's not exactly like you've had to tax your bullpen all too much either. So, all things considered, I don't think you could ask for a better outcome if you're Ottawa. No, not at all. It went. Exactly to plan for them, and we'll see what we'll see what happens tonight. It should be a, a really fun matchup. Absolutely. On the flip side, we have one last uh, matchup and one last game here to talk about in the 
uh, Frontier League real quick, and then we will uh, switch over to the American Association because they also are in the middle of the postseason right now as well. And that is Washington and Schaumburg, another one where I think we kind of said Washington should probably win this series, although I think this one we were a little bit more hesitant to say, like, outright uh, Schaumburg should be written off on account of what we saw last year. Uh, particularly against the Wild Things, too, because we keep in mind, this is a rematch of the championship between last year, which is a storyline that we could have ran with what did that. And Schaumburg just came out and was dominant. Just utterly dominant, putting up, what, eight runs before the Wild Things even saw got any runs. Schaumburg just kind of dominated them. 11-2 is your final. Uh, again, a lot of just not... Too many productive guys on the Washington side of things. On the flip side, I, everybody for for the Boomers managed to put up at least one hit. Everybody seemingly reached base, I think, twice, if I'm not mistaken. There may be one player or two players that didn't reach twice, but just about everyone did. As a team, they hit for the cycle, too. Uh, no one in particular, though, but overall as a team, they did, which is still kind of impressive. Luis Perez went out. Five innings of three hit ball. Kristen Stock Scott comes in one inning, no hit ball. Jake Joyce comes in, he gives up three hits, two runs. Not great, but not terrible. Daryl Thompson comes in, strikes on the side, ends it. Uh, not that Daryl Thompson, the other Daryl Thompson, just to make that, you know, said, gotta say that. On the flip side, rookie of the year, Kobe Foster, not a good start. Only two and two thirds, seven hits, six earned. Not what you want to see. Still struck out five, though, which is impressive, but not what you need. Uh, Dan Kubiak, uh, two innings, two runs. Darren Osby, two innings, two runs. Kenny Pearson, one in the third innings, one run. So nobody really had a good day uh, on the Washington side of things. They're going to need to flip this around in time for Sunday. Uh, the scene ships from Schaumburg, Illinois, to Washington, PA. So... We'll see if having the home field again helps the Wild Things out. They need to find an answer. They need to find an answer quickly because that is not the kind of performance that's going to get you to a championship game. Yeah, it was just it was just one of those games where nothing went right for for Washington at all. And I mean, I mean, are these freaking boomers are like the boomers going to do it again? I mean, but hey, they very well may. They are the just the absolute kings of getting blazing hot at the right time and just destroying everything in their path. And honestly, that's what we've seen through these first two games of their postseason. I mean, uh, the reality is nobody has been able to hit Kobe Foster this whole season. And uh, and I don't know what happened, a road playoff start and whatnot. He just didn't have it. I mean, the, the Boomers lineup, is is red hot right now they're swinging production up and down the lineup one through nine everybody on the everybody in the starting lineup had a hit uh so i mean that kind of production of course luis perez giving them five innings uh five shutout innings to start the bullpen doing a solid job as well uh i think that it's i mean the, the boomers are just the kings of just playing great baseball at the right time, but then again, it all comes out. It, the common thread that we've seen is, uh, is getting that early lead, getting out in front, uh, and that's exactly what Schaumburg did once again, as just as they did in their wild card matchup against Evansville. Uh, they jumped out to do an early lead. They pulled, they they pummeled Kobe Foster right out of the gate, uh, and their pitching was able to use that seize momentum and cruise to a victory. Uh, I mean, I 
I, I have to say, Nick, if you would have told me really just 24 hours ago that uh, we would be in a situation on Saturday morning that Washington and Quebec are both playing elimination games, um, I would have probably said that you're crazy because mm-hmm. uh, of the season that those two teams have had and that we know the roster that those two teams have had. But, I mean, both of them just had really brutal um, game ones and Washington more so. Uh, so now they're going to be playing for their lives and it's going to be fascinating, but I mean, just a really, <laughs> uh, this Schaumburg is playing some really great baseball right now. They really are. I mean, Kobe Foster has a legitimate claim to ace the staff. I mean, coming in with a 178 ERA, rookie of the year, like I mentioned earlier, only two losses and 11 starts. It's, uh, it is surprising, but you're right. Schaumburg's the kind of team that just, they get in. And once they're in, then they know what they need to do. And then they just take care of business. And it's extremely impressive. The plus side, though, if you are Washington, is you still do have two very good, very reliable starters. And I think that's why they kind of felt okay with running Darren Osby out there, who hasn't had the best of years, but still is a very capable starter. You still do have uh, Sandro Cabrera, who has is leading your team in innings. He does have a sub 3-5 ERA. You have Rob Whalen still, who has a 3-5 ERA. So presumably your plan is to run one of them out in game two, one of them out in game three, if you get to game three. And there's enough pitching on this team where you can manage to keep it afloat. It's just a matter of they need to get the offense going, which this team can hit. We've seen them hit before. It's just uh, collectively they need to start to do it more and with some frequency here. Ian Walters needs to start getting together. Uh, Andrew Check needs to get going. I'd like to see some more offense out of Hector Roa. Uh, admittedly, it looks like a down year across the board for him, but still more there. Uh, Lagrange and uh, Dubrul as well. There's enough guys on this team that can hit. Uh, Kristen Peterson as well. There's guys on this team that can hit. It's just they need to start hitting well. Cole Brennan had a good game. Uh, he needs to repeat that in game two. Nick Ward's back. He's a huge piece to this team and really needs to perform here. I understand that. I believe it was that he was hurt for a little bit. Uh, but now that he's back, he needs to start to perform very quickly just because there isn't a real time to get back into the swing of things. It's a matter of, look, he, you need to get going right off the bat. He got in two games to end the season now. He's back again. Uh, for the postseason, so not great in his last two games. One for five against Windy City, one for four against Schaumburg. He did have a double as his one hit, but um, yeah, I'd like to see more on Nick Ward there. I'd like to see more just out of this lineup as a whole. Broncado's another guy that can be solid. We saw him be solid in Florence. I'd like to see that again. So overall, it's a good lineup. It's a good pitching staff. We just need more out of them. You know, their they're backs against the wall, but they have quality arms, and I'm sure it's all hands on deck tomorrow night for uh, for Washington as well. It's going to be all hands on deck. Everyone's going to be available. Uh, so I, I think they can still trust their roster going going in, going back home, uh, but certainly not in a great spot down 1-0, but they can, they're certainly capable of coming back. They absolutely are. And on that note, the next time we talk to you, we will likely be in the middle of the championship series. We could be talking to you the day that the series ends because 
the latest possible date for the divisional series to go is Monday the 12th. And then Wednesday the 14th, we get started either way uh, for championship week. Obviously, at this point, we don't have a matchup yet. So when we get that, we will uh, we'll dissect it. That is, of course, assuming that uh, it isn't practically done at that point. As uh, Friday's their travel day, Saturday is game three of the championship series. So we will wait, we will see, and then we will discuss uh, when we get to that. But we do have a lot more to cover, even though we've already gone quite some time here. We do have more to discuss, and that is in the American Association. Their playoffs have also started for their wild card week. It is a little bit less of one game and more of a three-game set. That has not stopped the Kansas City Monarchs. Of course, they managed to make short work of the Lincoln Salt Dogs. Two O's, how that series ended last night. Lincoln did a better job than I thought. But in the end, I think uh, Kansas City was always supposed to win that series. So make short work of the Salt Dogs. But in the end, the Salt Dogs just didn't have enough. Yeah, and that's a result that uh, kind of more along the lines of what we were expecting in some senses in the, uh, in the Frontier League. But I mean, Kansas City, they, they played, they were playing terrific baseball at the, at the end of the season. They were able to steal back that, uh, the West Division regular season crown. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they took the, they took Lincoln and, you know, Lincoln was playing really good baseball uh, at the time. They were able to just sneak into the postseason. They were able to sweep, uh, to get in. To the playoffs. Well, it wasn't think, quite a sweet. It was three of four, but they did win okay, their last three in a row. So practically speaking, yes, but uh, technically. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, Lincoln got hot. It won three straight to to end the season just so they could get in. The talent discrepancy was just, it was just too much. And uh, and at the end of the day, Kansas City, uh, Kansas City just kind of rolled. They kind of cruised onto a, cruised onto a victory. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think that uh, I think it wasn't too surprising just because Kansas City is that's kind of what they do when they when they get to the playoffs as well. Uh, and I think that uh, it's certainly a great performance for them. Take care of business. Now they can get a little bit of rest. Absolutely. And what one thing we didn't cover was you know who everybody took because at the point where we were recording we didn't know everything yet. Milwaukee was wound up being the team that Chicago picked. Chicago had choice. They chose Milwaukee, a team that was not playing very good baseball coming into the playoffs. And game one went to Milwaukee, 2-1. And then last night, but it was 3-2 Chicago. So we do have a game four. Everything has a game four except for that Kansas City series. I can't really add much more than that. Kansas City's a tank team. They were going to win that series no matter what. Although there were some good individual performances. As far as uh, the Milwaukee series goes here, this is a team that uh, they struck out a lot in game one. They managed to get their two runs, and that was that. A pitcher's duel is probably the best way of putting it. A.J. Shugel, six innings, three hits, one earned, five strikeouts. Jeff Kinley, six innings, four hits, two earned, two walked, six strikeouts. So pretty even there, and the bullpens both did their job. They went the same amount of distance. And uh, ultimately, Milwaukee just managed to kind of eke it out. They pulled it out. Good for them. Uh, I didn't really know what to expect. I kind of thought maybe it's not meant to be for Milwaukee just because of how poorly they played coming in. But they have made it a lot more interesting. That much is for certain. It was 8-6 Chicago last night, so a bit more 
which uh, is an interesting, more interesting game. Milwaukee puts up five in the top of the first, bottom of the f- bottom of the second. Chicago gets it right back. Milwaukee puts up another lead or extends it to a two-run lead in the third, and Chicago ties it up, and then Chicago winds up winning in the seventh. So it wasn't a good day for starters, but the bullpen did a very good job. Uh, Jordan Kipper gives up the, all six uh, Milwaukee runs in four innings. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman gives up four of the uh, runs. And then Miles Smith came in in relief, pitched three and a third. And th- both the runs he surrendered were unearned. Only one of Zimmerman's runs were unearned. Peyton Gray gets tagged with the loss after giving up two. It does set up a very interesting um, elimination game tonight on Saturday night between Chicago and Milwaukee. Uh, I'm not quite sure who to take in this one because they're both fairly evenly matched. It is in Chicago, so I'm almost inclined to go with the home team on that alone. Although I think it really does kind of come down to pitching matchup here, and I'm not quite sure who each side is going to throw out in this one. Yeah, and I think that it, it is pretty evenly matched, and uh, you know it's it's been a really good series so far, as you would, as you would expect, really between these two teams in the postseason. But you know what? It's all. I think Nick, the thing, interesting thing to think about is based on the result of tonight. You know, you're gonna think, hey, at the end of the day, Chicago picked Milwaukee, right? Yeah. So. Uh, they, they, and I, and I know Cleburne ended the season on a rampage. Like, I, I get that. And Cleburne, of course, has their own, has their own, uh, winner take all game against Kane County tonight. Yeah. You know, you wonder is maybe, uh, should they have, maybe should they have picked Cleburne? I guess it's hard to, it's hard to play that game now. And of course, Cleburne is, is forced, uh, or Cleburne is, is at least pushed this to at least three games and maybe end up winning. But uh, I think that, you know, that's going to be something to look at uh, that once these series are over. But it's been it's been an evenly matched series so far. I think, you know, we, we were at a point in, in the East Division that by the end of the year, uh, like the, all of these teams in Chicago, Kane County, Milwaukee, Cleburne, I mean, they got to a point where pretty much all four of those teams were, especially with Cleburne getting hot uh, at the end of the season to get to 500, that, that – um, that really we we've seen four pretty even teams right now in the East, uh, and so it was hard to pick a it was hard to pick a favorite. But uh, so I guess it's not a huge surprise that the, that both of these series have gone have gone the distance so far. But I think that uh, it's certainly going to be an interesting finish between uh, Milwaukee and Chicago. I picked Milwaukee. I, I said I believe a few weeks ago that like I would that I would pick Milwaukee to come out of the East. I guess I'll just stick with that. Uh, as far as, as looking ahead to tonight against Chicago, I think Milwaukee will be able to pull out the win on the road. Uh, but it, it should be an interesting game between the two rivals for sure. Yeah, it, it's going to be really close. I'll just be different. I'll say Chicago just because they now seem to have some momentum and they're playing at home. But it does seem like a pretty even series so far. Uh, when really the run differential between wins and losses have been one and two runs respectively. You can't really expect anything different there. Uh, you mentioned the Cleburne series. We'll go to that next. Um, Cleburne game one. They, I want to say surprisingly, but I believe it was the American Association that tweeted out a stat. And I'll try and find the tweet real quick. Uh, of Cleburne, since they started going on, it's kind of getting hot. They won something crazy, like 22 of their last 29 
something just unbelievable like that. So while I want to say, oh, it was crazy, it really isn't. They won 3-1, pretty decent score, pretty, you know, well expected at a home game for them. They will turn around. They wind up losing last night 6-4. to four. Kane County will host this game three for them. Overall, uh, it's hard to really say because you have a hot team versus a team that probably is the better team. So I don't really know where to, uh, where to land on that. You know, I'm, I'm going to, as far as the, the winner take all game tonight, I'm going to pick Cleaver. I think they're, mm. because, because at the end of the day, uh, it, this is not just a 10 game stretch where Cleaver has played baseball. You, I mean, you mentioned they've, they have, like over the last month, they have been virtually like unbeatable. Uh, and now do, does Kane County have the better roster? Probably. But I think what we see, what we see more often than not in these playoffs is that the, the hotter team is going to be the one that's going to end up, it's going to end up on top. And I think that that's what Cleburne has established themselves, uh, as, uh, and, you know, if it not, if it weren't for Kansas City and their hot stretch, you could probably, you'd have to say that they're the, uh, the, the best team, uh, or excuse me, the hottest team in the, in the American Association. But I that, uh, it's going to be a really interesting series, a uh, really interesting game for sure, uh, between these two. But you know what? I, I'm going to go ahead and, I'm going to go ahead and pick Cleburne. I think they, they continue their, this crazy run of theirs that they're on. Uh, and I think, th- and I think they'll push it to the East Division, uh, championship series. See, like, I definitely see that. And I, I agree with the line of thinking. It's just with Cleburne, I still like have beginning of the year Cleburne in my mind. And I understand like since August 4th, they're 22 and eight. Now I guess it'd be 23 and nine, but you know, regardless, um, they are hot. I respect that line of thinking. And if your best pitcher couldn't get a win, can your third pitcher get a win? It seems surprisingly even to me, which is not something I would have expected coming into the postseason. You know, I would have thought with the way everything kind of lined up, it wouldn't quite work out there. If I had to pick, I guess I'll go Kane, just because I I like more of the pieces on Kane. I like uh, Sherman Johnson. I like Cornelius Randolph. I like Nick Franklin. I really like Kerrigan. I, I like Rotella. I like a lot of pieces of that. That's not to say I don't like Cleburne's team. Royal's been great for a while. Clemens is good. is always good. Chase Simpson's kind of found himself again. There's pieces on that team that are very good. Don't get me wrong. It's just I think Kane County plays a more complete game. I think they are probably the more complete team. And overall, I just kind of, uh, I kind of more line up with that. It does look like the probables that are listed will be Fox versus Lucas. Fox going for King County. Lucas going for the, um, for the railroader. So we'll give that a look real quick just to kind of give you a, uh, an overall view of each of those. Uh, I get it because I, I do think King County has the better roster, but I think. I think Cleburne is just too hot right now, and I think that they'll be able to pull it out, even though, even though they're on the road. So, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to have the third and fourth place finishers playing in the East Division Championship Series. I think that would be the the most fitting way for the East Division uh, to to end their campaign. To be honest with you, it probably would. But uh, yeah, so Lucas, his stat line goes in nine starts, seventeen total games, fifty four and two thirds innings. 
with a six or with a 362, not six, 362 ERA flip side. We will go and find Fox real quick here, and then we will advance to what I believe is the final series we have to talk about in the um, in the uh, Winnipeg and Fargo-Moorhead series. But first, we do have to get the book on Fox, who I don't think has been terrible this year, but far from ideal no no he's actually been pretty uh pretty decent 16 game 16 starts 18 games including a complete game and about 92 innings of work with a 304 era looking at the two starters i'm i feel a lot more confident going with kane uh picking the better starter i think is really going to be key here for uh who's going to wind up winning and who's going to wind up not winning this uh so final final matchup to look at here in the postseason, Winnipeg versus Fargo-Moorhead. Winnipeg hosted game one. They managed to secure a big win, but they had a equally big loss with Max Murphy on a collision at home plate. It was, it seemed, I should at least say, a pretty innocent amount of contact. It didn't look too bad, at least just judging from the contact. But immediately after colliding with, I believe it was Correa at home, Murphy was just kind of down. You could see it was his leg, and it wound up being a broken leg. So he's he's done for the foreseeable future with that broken leg there. So that's going to be a huge loss to Winnipeg on a lot of different levels here. So the book kind of switched on him from uh, winning game one, six to three, to losing game two, eight to three, following a big uh, five-run inning early on that game for Fargo-Moorhead, the second inning, of course. So we go now to a game three in Fargo-Moorhead. I think a series where it would be safe to say Winnipeg was already the underdog. It's going to be a very uphill climb, it feels like, for uh, for the gold eyes here in game number three. Yeah, I mean, the loss of Max Murphy really can't be understated for, for the gold eyes. And uh, just a tough break on kind of a freak play uh, at, at home plate where I don't know if like you just you hit it wrong or you land on it wrong. And unfortunately, I mean, you certainly hope for the best for him and know he'll be back uh, because of the, the terrific baseball player that he is. It's it's going to be really tough, I think, for Winnipeg uh, to win without him. And, you know, it's one game and it's anything can happen. And, you know, the the one as big of a piece as Murphy is it's not like they can't win without him uh but it's it's going to be tough against a terrific Fargo Moorhead team um still uh still in Fargo uh tonight I I would think the I would think the Red Hawks take care of business and win but uh I mean the Winnipeg we've talked all all year even though they kind of struggled down the stretch they're a dangerous team in a series like this uh and they've you know, just forcing a game three. They've somewhat proved that as well, and uh, we'll see what happens tonight. But I mean, Winnipeg is certainly—they're certainly a dangerous team in these kind of um, in in these kind of a, in this kind of a series. Uh, but I think the I think ultimately the loss of Max Murphy in their lineup is going to be too much to uh, is going to be too much to overcome against a, a really good Fargo Moorhead team. And I think we'll get the uh, playoff series that we've been clamoring for since the uh, since really day one. Yeah, like part of me wanted to see Winnipeg and Chicago for a bit of a grudge match, uh, but Fargo and Kansas City is the one we want to see. We know it's going to be a, a fantastic matchup there, and 
part of me wants to still say this is how Winnipeg can do it. And there is a way, you know, they have a very good oh, yeah. lineup. I mean, Sagdahl's great. Navarro's probably one of the most underrated players across indie ball as a whole. David Washington's good. Hill's good. Michael Krause is good. Stanford, Stafford Jr. is good. Gonzalez is surprisingly decent. He's also a catcher alongside Stafford, but uh, Lachance even got a little bit of surprise in him too. It's a solid lineup. That's the thing. Like one through nine, there really aren't many weak spots of any in that lineup. It's just Fargo matches. Pete Maris is a very surprisingly solid batter and a good fielder. Manny Boskin won the batting title last year. Drew Wartz, one of the better hitters in this league. Leo Pena always comes up. John Silviano has this weird clutch factor about him where he will just mash when you need him to. Sam Dexter's solid. Alex Olin's a very good fielder on top of being a good batter. Correa's good. Uh, I mean, everyone's really solid there. So then it just comes down to pitching, and I'm not sure Winnipeg can keep up with with, uh, Fargo-Moorhead or at least that their pitchers can keep up with Fargo-Moorhead's bats, I should say. So when you look at everything here, I think it's a closer game than what we've seen. I don't think we're going to see another three-run or five-run spread type of game. I think we're going to see a much closer to a one- or two-run game that's not decided till later on. Uh, I think it's going to be close, but I do think Fargo kind of takes this one. Yeah, I, I think... There definitely is a way for Winnipeg to win because as as big of a piece as Murphy is, one player uh, doesn't make doesn't make the whole team, especially in baseball. So um, I think that there's certainly a way, but I think Winnipeg will have. I think there's too big of a hill to climb. I think Fargo Moorhead will take care of business. They well, in all likelihood should, and uh, assuming that well, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Assuming nothing, uh, divisional series will start on Monday the twelfth. Uh, game two will begin uh, on the 14th, so there will be a travel day following game one. And then the uh, uh, Wolf Cup, Miles Wolf Cup, uh, that will begin on the 17th. So next time we talk to you, we'll be previewing uh, that series there. That said, assuming it's Kansas City and Fargo-Moorhead, and assuming, I mean, you really can't assume anything in the East. I mean, you could very well easily be Kane versus Chicago or Milwaukee or Cleveland versus Chicago or Milwaukee. So just looking at the West here, on the rough outlook, uh, do we have any strong feeling one way or the other on who would take uh, that series? Seeing as by the time we next record, that series will almost certainly, well, it will be done. It, it would end on uh, Thursday at the latest. You know, if that if that were to be the matchup, because I don't want to like go ahead and just like push Winnipeg to the side yeah. in, a, in in a winner take all game, but hypothetically, if that were if that were to be the matchup, I mean, I I would probably pick Kansas City. Uh, it's so it's so evenly matched. I just I just like how Kansas City's playing right now. They're getting hot, very similar to. Last season, when they were they were definitely the best team in the league, the gap is definitely closed this season. But I, I think that I think it's a series that goes the distance. But I think Kansas City will ultimately be the ones that come out on top, especially with their home field advantage. Also, I uh, strong feelings no, but I I would pick Kansas City in a, in a matchup. I know you love Fargo, so you'll probably pick Fargo because I know how you roll. I re- I really do like Fargo. Like everything, the aesthetic about the, like. 
there's an in, the non-insignificant part of me that kind of wants to roll out to Fargo next year just to see a game there and get the whole experience of Fargo. But that's neither here nor there. What is important is the series. For me, what kind of does it for me is obviously no one that's pitching in this series is really going to go in game one. That makes it a little bit easier. What sounds extremely interesting to me is, because I think we both agree it would go the distance going three. So in a game three winner take all, either having uh, Grower or uh, McGovern versus Max Hall, or Matt Hall rather, would be a, such a fantastic game three. It would be damn, it would be about as must watch as you would get. And it is a tragedy to me that we are not going to, um, get to see this be a five game series. This deserves to be five. It doesn't, it shouldn't be three, but I would, I'm probably going to side with you and go with Kansas City. I think they're a bit of a better team. Plus this team has the track record now. They won just last year. Every year they've played, they've seemingly made a championship game over the last two or three years. So I, I have to go with the Monarchs, but at the same point, I, I'm kind of pulling for Fargo to pull off an upset and get it done, but, uh, either way it would not surprise me. That's, of course, assuming that we get that and that, you know, Winnipeg doesn't, uh, pull off the upset tonight. Yeah. It's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to, to, it, it, it's really hard to discount Winnipeg in one game, and, but you know what? I think I just want to see that playoff series so bad. So I, know. I hope we get it. It could go either way. It'd be really fun. I know. I really want it to. But on that note, we have one last piece of news from the American Association. That is the slew of awards that they announced over the last week. We will start with the postseason awards. This is not like playoff awards. This is end of year awards, which is really what they should call it to make it less confusing, but that's not important. We'll go through, we'll start at the pitchers and work our way around the diamond until we are done with that. And then we'll go into individual awards such as rookie of the year, uh, pitching rookie of the year, defensive player of the year, manager of the year, those types of things. Um, so starting, starting pitcher of the year, uh, Matt Hall winds up taking it. Reliever of the year, Alex DeBoer takes it. Uh, Hall from Kansas City. Fargo Moorhead is where DeBoer is from. From Chicago, Ryan Lidge will be catcher. Uh, David Washington at first from Winnipeg. At second, Grant K. Chicago. Shortstop will be Raul Navarro. Winnipeg. Uh, Fargo Moorhead's Leo Pena at third. Outfield is made up of King County's Jimmy Kerrigan. Cleburne's Zach Narrier. And the outfield final spot is from Winnipeg, Max Murphy. Uh, the designated hitter would be Fargo Moorhead's Drew Ward. And the utility man would be Brian Torres from Milwaukee there. Um, only kind of, because it's unofficially pitcher of the year and reliever of the year for the pitching ones. Hall only kind of surprises me, not because of the numbers. Numbers are fantastic. He's leagues ahead number-wise of everybody else. So that's why I'm not really upset about it, but... What I will say is, I don't know about the innings pitched. I feel like that yep. should have been something that should have been considered there. And I understand I agree with that. the only re like I understand the only reason he's that low is because he did get picked up, and you're not gonna get picked up if you're not a great pitcher. I totally get it. I totally get it. But it was a significant difference in innings. It's something that's got to be acknowledged, you know. Like, yeah, I would I would agree with that, and I think that. 
that would that's my one like legitimate gripe, but not that I don't think Matt Hall is deserving because I do, but he just he just didn't throw that many innings. So I think that and that's not his fault. I mean, yeah. he just he just was in a major league organization. So like I get it, but you know at the same time, um, it's it's tough because it's that fine line to walk. Eighty two innings. I mean, you would think. I guess. Uh, I mean, I would. I guess I would still um, probably give it to him, but I think it's definitely something that has to be acknowledged. So I def, I definitely see your point there. I think that's my only one, like, legitimate, like, question of that. But and I'm sure it's just something that uh, uh, the voters for this uh, griped with as well. It's hard to fault them a ton for just going with Matt Hall because he is so far and away the best pitcher in the league, like just straight up. I do see, I do think there's a legitimate uh, argument to be had that, Hey, he threw only 82 innings. And I acknowledge that as well. And like you can throw out anyone that doesn't have an ERA under three. So that just kind of leaves Kinley and Minier. Uh, Minier threw 109 innings and he had an ERA of 273. So not bad at all. I can understand maybe not uh, going as much for that. Uh, but, with Kinley, he also didn't throw too many, but he started in the bullpen. So I, I guess throwing him out. The thing is, when you have someone with a 248 versus a 110, you got to go 110 innings aside. But for me, it just doesn't sit right. You have a guy that throws 27 more innings than somebody else and then uh, doesn't win it. Like that's what? At bare minimum, three starts, probably closer to four or five starts difference there and I mean I'm not saying Matt Hall wouldn't have had a better ERA still even if he only throws another three starts and let's say he only adds on another make another 20 to make it easier math I'm not saying Probably, that, yeah. yeah like I'm not saying in those 20 innings it would have been radically shifted up I don't think he's jumped a full point and a half in his ERA in like three starts but it would have made it a lot easier and I guess at the end of the day when you're given that award you look at it and you go, hey, is the three starts going to make that big of a difference for this guy with the team he has? And ultimately, the answer is probably no. And I mean, like I will say, though, I I think the more impressive year would be Minier from Lincoln, just because he had Lincoln behind him, a Lincoln team that for a large chunk of the season had maybe two or three guys in the field where you go, yeah, they're solid especially after Justin Bird went to Mexico for a bit. So that's the that is the one where I'm like, mm, I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, that said, we have other awards to get to. The uh, Rookie of the Year, batter-wise, are Lagua uh, from Gary South Shore. He winds up winning the Batter Rookie of the Year. They differentiate the two because the Pitcher Rookie of the Year uh, is from the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks in Tyler Grower. Uh, honestly, for a good minute, he looked like he could have been a pitcher of the year candidate. Ultimately, you wound up sliding off, but a solid, solid year from him. Defensive player of the year would be Zach Narrier. Normal player of the year would, of course, be Max Murphy. I don't The uh, manager of the year goes to Chris Coast of the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think I think I'm pretty much in agreement with, with with all of those. I think that uh, it's funny you talk about uh, 
you talk about the rookie, uh, the rookie of the year award for, uh, pitcher and Tyler Grower, I think that was probably the easiest one you could go with. Yeah. Uh, just because he, he could, like, for a while, it looked like he could have been, uh, potential, um, could have been a potential pitcher of the year candidate before Matt Hall just totally dominated. Uh, so that seems like a pretty easy award. I don't have any legitimate gripes with, with any of these. So I think they pretty much got it right. Yeah, I'd say so. I, at first I was not totally sold on, uh, Murphy being the, the player of the year, but the more I look across the board and I look at the other possibilities, he is the best mix of, uh, average, like hitting for average and power. He led the league in home runs at 31, led the league in RBIs at 97. I understand the counting stats, but even when you pull up, pulled up the war, he was among top three there too. So, uh, overall, I would agree with that. I think they got pretty much all right. So on that note, we will switch over to the Pioneer League. Um, quickly of note, they did announce a partnership on, I believe it was Thursday, with Frito-Lay to be their playoff sponsor. So it is the Pioneer That's League. Fun. Yeah, there's the Pioneer League presented by... Uh, oh, hold on, let me make sure I get this entirely right because it is a bit complicated. So is the Pioneer League presented by Ticket Smarter with the Frito-Lay Pioneer League playoffs. They are now the official snack food of the Pioneer League, and the sponsorship will include the exclusive sale of Frito-Lay snack items, including Tostitos, Doritos, uh, Lay's, and Ruffles chips, as well as Cheetos and Cracker Jacks at all 10 Pioneer League parks. Um, the Frito-Lay... Pioneer League uh, playoffs will include the best of three divisional series between the North and South Division uh, champions. And then the divisional winners will meet in the best of three championship series. Uh, Ogden is going to face off after having won the first division, uh, won the South Division in the first half. They're going to be playing Grand Junction. Meanwhile, Missoula won both the first and second half. They are going to get Billings, if I have that correct, uh, that will start on Monday the 12th, that series. So that should wrap up, uh, fairly condensedly there. So, um, yeah, we got another partnership from the Pioneer League. They keep making moves. They keep doing interesting things and the postseason's about to begin for them. I, I, I love that. I, I love the, the, the playoffs sponsored by the, uh, Pioneer League presented by Ticket Smarters. Free, uh, playoffs presented by Frito Lay. I mean, that just that just rolls off the tongue. Um, but you know, I think it's they, they keep the Pioneer League keeps being at the front of a lot of this innovation. So um, uh, I, I don't mind it. I mean, I like all those chips. So yeah. that that I like I like the Pioneer League. I like the Missoula Paddleheads. Uh, I will. I love the Ogden Raptors logo, uh, and I like most of those chips so to be honest with you i'm i'm all for it uh you know if you ask me who i'm picking for the playoffs it's the paddleheads because i'm not picking against the paddleheads uh but uh, i think that you know i've never seen a a uh individual playoffs sponsored by anything but you know what since it was it's sponsored by frito-lay i'll take it yeah normally this is the kind of thing you see in like the major professional leagues like They'll have like Honda as the presenter for like the whole NHL playoffs or something like that. So I don't necessarily mind it. I especially don't hate it in like the indie ball level. 
if for no other reason than it's just the operating costs hit a little bit more, particularly for the Pioneer League where you're going way across mileage. You're going between Utah, Montana, Colorado, you know, you're going all over the map. So I don't necessarily mind doing what you can to generate some more revenue. It's almost certainly for the best of the league. So perfectly cool with that. As far as matchups go, I like Grand Junction over Ogden. Grand Junction's just the hotter team. Uh, so I, I like that better. Um, Missoula, I think, should make short work of Billings and Missoula in two. Uh, if Billings manages to pull it off, though, amazing upset. Truly amazing there. One of the better stories of the year, to be quite honest. But Missoula's got one of, if not the best winning percentage across all of professional baseball, including affiliate ball, including major league baseball, too. So no, no, uh, no slouching team there in Missoula. So I kind of expect them to win this battle of Montana that we have going on here. And I would agree with you. Well, I think Missoula is going to win the whole thing, but we shall wait. We shall see. And, um, Thursday, the series ends. So I guess we'll be talking a little bit about, um, who's going to be playing in that championship game next week. We have a lot of championship previewing to do, uh, next week. It would look like, but we do have news outside of uh, outside of independent ball and does kind of bleed into uh, our last league that we all know is going to be the Atlantic League we're going to talk about because Major League Baseball is implementing some new rules for next year. And some of these, if you are an Atlantic League fan or if you listen to this show for a while, they'll be fairly uh, reminiscent to you. There's going to be a pitch timer next year, Major League Baseball, 15 seconds when the bases are empty, 20 seconds when there's a runner on base, hitter receives one timeout per plate appearance. Um, this is obviously to try and reduce the game time because they, they drag on a little bit here, but the two that are going to be very familiar to Atlantic League people, bigger bases for a second and third, they end up going from 15 to 18 uh, square, and, uh, and then the shift restriction, two infielders must be positioned on either side of second base when the pitch is released. All four infielders must have both feet within the infield uh, when the pitcher is on the rubber. So these sound like they're familiar, don't they, Will? These sound quite familiar, I would say. Yeah. I mean, look, my personal opinion, uh, bigger bases, I think that I think we're both even when they were in the Atlantic League, I'm for it. It's cool. Player safety, good. I'll take it. Uh, now, I'm kind of split as far as the pitch clock and the shift restriction. I will say about the pitch clock, because, you know, I mean, I still live right near Somerset. I went to a bunch of games this year. Nick, I think out of all of the Somerset games I've been to this year, and I've probably been to like 2025, 20, I think mm-hmm. I've been to one game that went over three hours. One. Really? Which is... I mean, Insane. holy crap. I mean, the Atlantic, the Atlantic League game I called the other day, but, or last week between the Ducks and the Barnstormers mm-hmm. went like four hours and five minutes. So I think that at the end of the day, you have to think of, um, if you go to an MLB game, you're going to see a, a lot, like no matter what the score is, uh, unless it's like a huge game, but uh, no matter what the score is, people are going to leave in like the seventh and eighth inning. Because people's attention span around two and a half hours. Yeah, right. That's enough. Yeah. Because like you, you don't see that. But like, and, and Nick, I know you could say that for if it's a close game, like hockey or the NBA, 
people don't leave. Yeah. Right. People stay. Uh, and I think that you don't want, you don't want baseball. And I'm not, I'm not a huge, like, I'm not one of those guys who is like, you're like, oh, like baseball's too long. And I like, like grumble like that. But I understand at the end of the day that the game has to get shorter for the betterment of the game. Um, and I think that I wasn't a fan of the pitch clock at first, but after seeing it in action, I, I think it's really good thing for the game. It has a better pace. And I think historically speaking, the, the better pitchers in the game work at a quicker pace. Uh, and, I don't really have much sympathy for pitchers who are complaining that like take 35 seconds in between pitches that walk around the mound, pick up the rosin bag, adjust the bottom of their bottom of their pants and their socks and then get on the rubber and then shake off the first sign, shake off the second sign, accept the third sign, come set, step off. Like I and then the whole process starts again. So to be honest with you, I think that I am for the I, I am very much for the pitch clock after seeing it in action. I know there's a lot of people who are not, and I and I understand the reasons why because it's kind of it's awkward at first. I do think it'll have a better impact on the game, though. I'd agree with that too. I think at a certain point you just stop caring, and what the at least the NBA and the NHL, and to a lesser extent the NFL has, is their sports have more of a constant flow to it. They have more of an action to it. And the NFL already kind of has a quasi-pitch clock in the uh, game clock. You know, you get the 25, 40 seconds in between plays where it's going to happen, so you know you have stuff occurring. So really you're just putting that in to Major League Baseball, but with the NHL and the NBA, it's a constant flow of stuff. So you can't really just get up and leave and come back and not miss that much. You're going to miss a lot of play happening. So it keeps you kind of in suspense. With Major League Baseball, I understand it's more of like a check move, one move, then another move, then another move. But with all the passing time in between, it's hard to keep up that kind of suspense, that kind of action there. You don't have rising action when you're going 35, 40 seconds in between pitches, you need to keep it more like that 15, 20 second mark. I think the times are fair. I think it works out well. And quite frankly, if it keeps uh, more people engaged in baseball, and more people going to ballparks, it has a net positive effect across the board. That said, obviously we've said in the past, bigger bases don't matter at all. I mean, like you don't notice them at all. As for player safety, it doesn't matter. Uh, as far as uh, shift restrictions go, this is a different story, I think, because at least with the other ones, when you test them in the minor leagues, you test them in the Atlantic League, you could genuinely have uh, an impact. You could see what it what it means because it happens every play and it was fairly frequent beforehand. Who is shifting in minor league baseball? Well, that's the one thing we said in the Atlantic League was, as far as the shift restriction goes, it's not going to matter that much because nobody really shifts here. And when they were testing this, how often did we see a shift? Like, really, before this. You seldom ever see it because, A, you really don't have the data to really back it up to be able to put it into play in the Atlantic League because of how much the roster changed. Even the guys where you'd have it, you know, it it's not going to be as effective. And two, it just really wasn't that effective. You didn't have that kind of consistency among batters where, you could consistently say, oh, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. It just never really worked up. Plus, you also had a lot of more older school type managers, especially 
you know, a few years back than you do now, where shifting wasn't as much of a thing. So it just feels like, okay, great, you're using a rule that even when it was being tested, we said, I don't really know what to make of this. Best of luck to you. So I don't really love restricting the shift. Plus, again, there's always a way to beat the shift, which is hitting the ball the other way. If you can't do that consistently, you could lay down a bunt to where there is one, maybe two fielders that have to get that ball. So I always felt like the shift had an inbuilt, you know, kind of breaking point. But uh, if they want to restrict because they think that's going to be a solution, go for it. Uh, That's just the only one here I have an issue with. I, I totally agree. I'm not a I'm not a fan of uh, the the shift ban. I just I think it sets a bad precedent. And look, I I understand because the the case for it is well, a lot of people watch for more like the aesthetics. That like I know this is gonna sound dumb, but I promise you, like I think I think this makes sense. You correct mm. me if I'm wrong. People, I think people watching on TV they see like hard hit ball up the middle and their their brain says base hit and then when it's not they're like huh or like weak ground ball like to where the shortstop ball usually is and then there's nobody there and the fans are like what the like i, I think that I, it's a lot of it is more like aesthetics than the actual game and to be honest with you i don't like the idea of i don't think it's going to have well, actually, I don't know. It's it's hard because I don't think there's going to be a huge impact because you can still kind of play people up the middle. Uh, the one thing that I tell you, I tell you the one thing the the shift ban that I would do is I would not have two guys on either side of second base. Mm-hmm. I think I I what I would do is say infielders have to start on the dirt mm-hmm. uh, on the pitch. That would be the thing I would do because the thing that annoys me is like when you put like. Uh, like I don't, I don't love like the idea of like four outfielders. Like I, th- I could see that being annoying. Or you having like the guy who's like literally in shallow right field, like getting ready to field like that base hit to right field. I would be fine doing that as opposed to saying you can have two guys on. You have to have two guys on either side. If you want to put four guys on the right side of the infield, that's your business. Have your fun as long as they're as long as they're on the dirt. So I would rather have that. Is it's like the equivalent to me of in basketball saying like uh like you someone has a weak left hand and you're trying to force them to your left hand but you can't do but like that's against the rules like no you have to play them straight up well why would you have to play them straight up you're trying to win so i if you wanted i if you wanted to put if you wanted to have the shift and put them say everyone has to start in the infield i'd be fine with that i don't like the idea of two guys on either side of the infield personally I'd agree with that too. I think it's almost, it almost feels like when the NHL put in the trapezoid, cause they're like, well, goaltenders are too good at playing it. And I mean, realistically, the reason for the trapezoid is because the devil started, you know, doing the trap move where we're going to force you to dump it in, but our goaltender's good enough to handle the puck so they could just get it and outlet it up. So you really can't get in the zone. We're going to win every game one nothing because we can do it this way. So it feels like kind of an artificial fix to a problem only in this particular instance. Is not nearly as pressing of a problem. Uh, it feels like you're all right in the, it's being done because people have certain expectations of the way the game should be played. And because that's not what's happening right now, because it's just not as effective to play that way, you have a bunch of people complaining about it. So they're 
Major League Baseball's response is, oh, well, we'll just artificially reset it to that way to make you play inefficient. Which, again, just doesn't feel right. It's like, okay, I understand why you're doing it, but it just it shouldn't be done this way. Uh, so I would agree with that. I think it is kind of done just because fans are annoyed about it, but not everybody. Just like a small vocal group are annoyed that the shift exists. Because, again, you can beat the shift by learning how to bunt. That's just it. A, a good bunter could easily beat the shift, I'd say, at least 7 out of 10 times. There's going to be times, of course, we have a good fielding pitcher or catcher that's able to get to that ball and get it over to first in time. But even, I mean, as simple as choking up and just trying to slap it the other way will get the job done. You don't need to have a pretty hit against the shift. You just got to hit to where the fielders aren't. Easier said than done, yeah, but I just, I don't like artificial fixes to problems that are not, you know, game-threatening. And the shift is not a game-threatening problem. I just I don't like I agree I don't like art that's my that's my similar issue with runner on second yeah. that I think it's an I think it's artificial and anything that's artificial kind of annoys me like for example like I don't love like I don't love the shootout in hockey either that's another conversation for another day uh, although I understand the reason for it that doesn't mean like and I'm not saying they should take it away but like I don't like it uh because i think it's artificial again the the reasons are what they are i get it but uh but i'm not a huge fan of artificial fixes i think that that's what this is uh and so yeah i mean i I agree with you on that exactly so we'll, we'll keep it going just so that way we can wrap up this show this week which is with the atlantic league although this will be something that we're going to go back to uh later on as more of these atlantic league rules get introduced and all we really have for the Atlantic League is we have a record-breaking performance and we have uh, some more clarity in the postseason race. So why don't we go ahead and we take a look at that. The record-breaking performance is from uh, Darian Sanford. He is now the Atlantic League's all-time steel king uh, at what I believe is 291 or 293. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, he set that record the other night. I believe it was Thursday night uh, with the Lexington Legends. So congrats to Darian Sanford. He marches on forward to continue stealing more bases, and I'm sure he has it there too. So on that note, uh, well, well, I'll comment on that first before we get into the other playoff notes. Yeah, I think that Sanford, uh, he's been just an incredible base dealer for so many years. The fact that He's still doing this uh, at age 35 is incredible to me, uh, and he still has blazing speed. I mean, in his career, he has 700 and like in all of like his minor league indie ball experience, 704 stolen bases, which is just incredible. It just it's incre- it's just crazy. So I think that uh, he he's a special stolen base leader. Uh, he's continue. I mean, I think uh, his high at one point was 82 stolen bases back with the Barnstormers in 2018. Uh, he, I'm so glad he was able to get this record. Uh, and it, which is, it's so awesome for him and see a guy. He's been in indie ball for a long time. Uh, see him get a record like that is really cool. Uh, and he's, it's incredible that he's still stealing as many bases as he is at, at age 35. Uh, and I refuse, and I do want to make a mention of this just so I don't, cause I do want to make a mention of this. I'm not going to let 
the Atlantic League's incompetence overshadow uh, Darian Sanford's awesome record, but I do think the need, need to make a mention Atlantic League. When you're when one of your major all-time records gets broken, maybe this is something that should be talked about like the day of or like Darian Sanford needs X and like basically drum up the interest on social media and social networks. They didn't even do that. Uh, they didn't even post that Darian Sandberg broke the all-time stolen base record until 12.30 the next day. Like, just afternoon. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to go on a rant about this that I could, because I don't want to overshadow Darren Sanford. Uh, but I think that that's ridiculous. But you know what? Darren Sanford, awesome stud. Congratulations. To be fair, it's also a league that doesn't update their actual records page, too. So they probably were confused themselves. Uh, that said, it, it, it was uh, a bit surprising here. And they did, to be fair, repost Lexington's mention of it at about 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning uh, the same day. So they didn't oh, have... That's prime viewership time there. Exactly. And you'd think, okay, he's like within two of them. Maybe we should get the graphic ready. Uh, but they did not. Uh, so not great there, but, uh, yeah, what is great is we pretty much have the playoff race figured out here. Gastoing is going to win the South both halves. Somehow they managed to get better in the second half, seemingly, than they did in the first half. They're going to have an all-time Atlantic League season. They're at 83 wins as the day begins today. Uh, as far as in the North, we know Southern Maryland's won. The first half, they are at 80 wins, and it looks like Lancaster having won 37 games here in the second half. They're up five games on the Blue Crabs. They almost certainly will win the North, and if they don't win the North, they will take one of the wild card spots. As far as teams that are alive in this wild card race, Ryan has these numbers better than I do, but from what my understanding is, is at least coming into last night's games, Lexington had like not even a 100th which percent. I think it was like point zero 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 seven percent long island slightly worse at point zero 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 six percent at uh, getting into the wild card hunt there neither team is going to make it. it's just not feasible at this point that means wild health kentucky and high point are going to duke it out for most likely one wild card spot uh, as of right now kentucky is five and a half back of that wild card spot so it's starting to get real doubtful here uh high point they managed to kind of come on, get back to 500 in the second half. So I'd assume that they're going to take this. They need to win some more games. They need some a little bit of help from Lex or uh, Kentucky just to kind of formally put this to bed. But uh, it, by all accounts, it should be high point. So presumably we'll have high point Gastonium and we will have uh, Lancaster and Southern Maryland. Both of those games start on the 20th and 21st. So... Again, next week we should know what the Atlantic League matchup is. We should be able to discuss it. And then, uh, yeah, next week will be a really fun week playoff-wise between championship outlook. I'm in, I believe, three leagues actually should wind up being and the uh, playoff matchup for the Atlantic League. So it's going to be real fun the next few weeks. Yeah, it's going to it's gonna be a lot of fun, and I, I can't wait for it. Uh, I think you have... Uh, you have two really good playoff matchups, honestly. Uh, and I think that Gastonia is much better than High Point, but you know what? Uh, High Point's played a lot better baseball of late. So 
I think that could be interesting. I really do. Uh, but I, I think Gastonia will come out on top eventually. But, uh, you know, high point, they started slow, but they've played much better of late. So I think, uh, I, I can see, I can see both. And I think Southern Maryland, uh, Lancaster is going to be really good as well. Absolutely. So with that, there are storylines everywhere and there's a lot of baseball left to be played at the most important part part of the season. So as we approach uh, an hour 45 on this show, I suppose it's best to get to the plugs and get out of here so you guys can actually get this episode up. It's about noon on the day of release, so I'm going to have a fun time editing this and trying to get it up before all the games come out. But um, on that note, we will go to the plugs. You want to find the show, you can find the show wherever you find podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Podomatic, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, like I said, anywhere you find podcasts, rate, review if you can on those platforms. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter at IndieBallPod and on Instagram at IndieBallReport and at ALPB underscore news. Um, website has the show notes for today's show, all the past shows, has all the past shows, and it has everything else on there as well. So be sure to check that out. Website is IndieBallReport.com. With that said, do we have anything else left to add? The Giants play football tomorrow. That sucks. I don't want to see it. However, Rutgers plays today after a huge opening week win against against BC on the road. Uh, If they don't beat Wagner, something went very, very wrong. So uh, let's hope they take care of business. Uh, But I guess I'm... Excited for the return of the of NFL football, not the return of Giants football. As far as NFL football goes, my fantasy team's doing very good. That's the benefit of having the first overall pick in a league that very much values uh, passing over running. And me picking up Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs, very good for me. We're doing pretty good on that front so far. And I will say, unfortunately, my pick'em has gotten started. I'm off to an 0-1 start because I had this belief that the Rams would, you know, win on a day that they're supposed to be celebrating, and they, in fact, did not win. So we're turning into a very big Panthers fan and a very big Dolphins fan for the rest of the week uh, because we'd like to go ahead and make it 2-1 to one in the pick'em. Got to get that started early. Runs through February, so... Uh, Fantasy's doing good. Pick them so-so, but we're only one game into the pick them season, so plenty of time on that front there. Uh, so that's all I got to really add, and also we're only about 30 days away from hockey returning as well, so that is a fantastic uh, piece of news. So there will be a slight overlap of preseason hockey and playoff baseball in the Atlantic League, so that's something of note and interest there. Um, but that's all I really got. So with that said... Nothing else left to add. Until next time, don't forget to play ball.